0: We are going to continue our series the 10 and so I'm going to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5 and if you have a bible or don't have a personal bible we have them available for you on the sides Um, and I want to let you know where we're going to be but I also just want you to listen to the story that was told in Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you don't know Scripture, more often than not, was meant to be orally said and heard, and so hear this word this morning. Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am proclaiming to you as you hear them today. Learn and follow them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make This covenant with our fathers, but with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire on the mountain. At the time, I was standing between the Lord and you to report the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. And the Lord said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them because I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing children to the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or donkey, or any of your livestock, Or the resident alien who lives within your city gates, so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and so that you may prosper in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Let us pray together. Lord, you speak to us through your word, through your spirit. May we hear and be receptive to what you say to us this morning. May the words that I deliver be what you want. May the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, right now we pray against the enemy's attacks. Who wants to ensnare and deceive? Who wants to consume? Who wants to devour? Bind the lies. Bind the evil. Do not let that prevail. May your truth and your word prevail this morning speak to us comfort us let us know that we are loved by you today it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray amen Amen. we hope to continue to get to know you and your story it's why we talk about gen cards it's why when we have the teaching time notes there's a little qr code On the the bottom left corner so that you can scan that so that you can communicate with us Really because when I stand up here I know that sometimes it feels like a one-way street Um, We at generations really want to make sure that communication is reciprocal And so while during this time I I teach and my goal is to equip you and ensure that the word of god um you're able to understand and apply, especially amidst all the lies in our world, um, that we actually get to hear from you. And we get to process this together. Because if we're really not alone and we're in this journey together, as I share, as I teach, I need you because your stories matter. Matter. And it's through your stories that God is at work. And so when we step into the story of Scripture, when I I read before I teach, it's so that we know that we're stepping into a bigger and more true story. So the words delivered, the words read, are not simply commands that were just written in a sky, divorced from reality. But were written to a, a people, in a place, and in a time. And those words have principles and power behind them because our God has power. Therefore, as we live in our everyday life, we can have a source that transcends the moment. That our perspective isn't limited just by our story, but is governed and transcended by an eternal story. As I considered our topic this morning... I may have even felt like I've started a little tense. I wanted to, like, come up with something to almost, like, soften the blow uh, because of the difficulty. I mean, I, I mean I've, seen, I've seen a, a conference recently. It's like, oh, laugh your way to a better marriage. And, and I definitely, like, like, I enjoy things like that, especially when you tread on difficult topics. But there's no really laughing at how an affair harms others the reality is is sex sexuality marriage affairs is a convoluted mess in today's world and sometimes we feel like we're making it up as we go because we don't want to step on anyone's toes sometimes we're just trying to do our best and sometimes We feel like, nope, I've got some strong conviction, and I'm just going to leverage it. And sometimes that does us good, and sometimes people feel the pain in the wake around us. And we wonder, how do we do this well? How do we engage in these topics in such a way that is sensitive to our own story and what God is doing in our life, but is also sensitive to the story of those around us, while yet still... Pervades the powerful truth of who God is and what he has done and what's best and how we should step into that. I mean, I even think about recently, you know, sayings like Super Bowl Sunday into the Monday after has been stated as the largest day for sex trafficking. If you scroll too much on TikTok, you may stumble upon something called swinger talk. Porn is commonplace both in written word and video. Lest you think today the world has gone to hell in a handbasket, the biblical stories are littered with sexual sin as well. The biblical story is not filled with perfect people. It's filled with people who are clinging to the promises of God and trying to bring them out in their life. And sometimes they do it perfectly. In other cases, and in most cases, they don't especially in this area. So as we engage this, we may even flip through the pages of our Bible and go, man, where are the heroes? How do they get it right? And even sometimes the best of them, David, the man after God's own heart, didn't always get it right. Solomon, who's considered the wisest person in the world in eternity according to scripture, asked God for wisdom, had like all areas of the sexual spectrum, That we learn in scripture. See navigating humanity's depravity is not new. In a historical or global or even biblical perspective. And I'll just give it to you straight. There's a lot of nuance that's needed in this conversation and in this topic. I can't give it to you all in 30 minutes. um, Which is why I preface the start of today's teaching with your story does matter. And as you think about what we're going to talk about today, there is nuance needed. So there are gonna be some things that I'm gonna have to talk about at a high level. And you're gonna wonder, what does that mean for me? And is there a loophole? Is there an exception? How does this work out? That's where this conversation needs to be headed is that two way street of us going back and forth of saying, how can we wrestle with these together? But for the sake of our community, and where we're at right now. Let me start with some of those high-level principles. Because I really do think there's just so many layers. There's so much poor pop culture slogans that are unhelpful. And, and even pop theology questions or slogans that are unhelpful in our just engagement with this. So let me just talk about three real quick. Marriage, sex, and identity. These three have been politicized, romanticized, and weaponized at various points in all of our stories. So let me take marriage to start. In terms of defining the good life, I think there are two extremes To believe that marriage is essential for one to have a good life without, like, and without marriage, like, you're nothing. Marriage can be seen as essential to being good or just having the best life. And without marriage, life ceases to be good or have true meaning. But when we take this view that without marriage, we can't stand on our own two feet, or we're not in our own sense, marriage has then become an idol. It's become something we pursued that is actually a God and robs us of being an individual love child of God. So that's one extreme. And so changing that marital status does not mean that you have arrived. Now, the opposite is equally true. To never marry and have many sexual partners is to be deemed as a success for some. Truly free liberated no constraints no restrictions i do me however i want whenever i want and it actually fractures the human soul i was having a conversation with a buddy just yesterday and he was talking about a barbecue at his house and he was saying, yeah, he's like, I was hanging out with these individuals, and we're wrestling with the principles of Jesus. And then they're talking about, and we learned how, how they were all swingers. And then we start to have some of that conversation. And what happens is, is they have to come up with extra rules and boundaries to make sure everyone's safe. And what happens is there's all this other stress. Is everyone getting tested, and how does that work? And what happens is in this place of supposed freedom, they're not actually free. There's more restriction in rules. See, marriage is not an item on a pedestal to be pursued, but marriage is also not an outdated institution used for sexual repression. Two, let me add that next factor or layer. I think there's, there's several reasons for, for sex in the Bible. I actually have a quick list. I'm not going to have you flip there, go through all of them. So, Maddie, go ahead and bring up that list. Procreation, consecration, consummation. We're getting in some big words here. Recreation, protection, and connection. The Bible outlines that in several areas throughout Scripture. It's a good thing, but often a weaponized or a misused thing in today's culture. And as you look at some of those words, you may find yourself in all of them and go, yeah, I can get behind that. For some of you, you may go, I'm not sure I'm there yet. I'm not sure I actually believe that. That's okay. But what I think these words start to do is when we start to wrestle with them and think about where does that make sense for us in our lives and who we are and who God is asking us and inviting us to be, they start to push back. On our craft self-expression that we like to make manifest in our world. See, in each of these, there's a personalization that's taken into account. You and another. Rather than the production of sex in our world. And it stands in stark contrast to society's larger view. Personalization privatization almost, care, nourishment, flourishing rather than production, get out what you put in, see one of the ways this shows up is porn that sees personal satisfaction or happiness as essential to the fulfillment of human life in sexual terms, it's used to use a distinction deployed by philosopher Roger Scruton pornography is about bodies, not faces. If sex is just about my pleasure, anybody will do as a partner. But in marriage, the specific identity of the sexual partner is critical. The purpose of sex is not to have sex just for the sake of sex, but to reinforce a relationship with a particular person. Or to use Scruton's terminology, with a face, not just with a body. See, what this starts to do is it starts to personalize this rather than distance it. And you all have people in your lives and in your worlds. You, you see it on your phone you, you, or you watch it on TV shows that want to depersonalize this. They want to numb you to it. They want to mischaracterize things so that when you start to think about, what does this mean for me? Who am I in light of what I'm experiencing and seeing? It starts to challenge us and what we have been told, which brings me to the final one, identity. See, in biblical times or even in ancient Greece, sex was regarded as something that human beings did. Today, because of Sigmund Freud, it's considered to be something vital to who human beings are. What happens is we reduce people to their orientation or sexual identity. People are more than that. They're more than that. You all are more than that. You are loved children of God who have jobs, families, you have a mental, you have a social, you have a recreational being. You have a spiritual component. You are more. And so if I simply reduce you or we reduce humanity simply to that category, then we miss out on the sum total of an individual. So without a growing awareness of these influences that shape your heart, the temptation is going to be on focus on controlling the external world or managing life by willpower. And neither are sustainable. So let me give you just kind of three questions to consider as you hear this word of life stepped into this story. These Ten Commandments with adultery in the midst of them. Who is the audience? It's a family of God that God chose to represent himself to the nations on the precipice of a promised land. See, it was out of rescue, out of relationship, out of his choice and love for them that then they were to respond in choosing him and yes. their actions of choice that them choosing him were going to be certain responses that showed up in these 10 commandments so these aren't exhaustive in fact Deuteronomy will continue to get into is is filled with applications of these words of life of these principles but it was out of rescue that this people group were to choose God and respond to him and what he had done They were to live live as people shaped by the reality of story of rescue, which would drive a response so that they don't simply try to just keep the law, get it right, check all the boxes by a desire just not to sin. And sin, just so we're clear, is living by a story where right and wrong is determined by you rather than God. Rather than simply try to keep the law, they were to fall in love with the lawgiver. Thus, in response to that, they would then keep the law. They would do types of things that would seek the well being of others. And so these commands, again, were not exhaustive, but they were and are words of life. So it's no surprise that in the midst of these, there's a commandment that addresses an act that breaks down a relational covenant. That is representative of God's covenant with his people. See, marriage is representative of an eternal covenant God made with his people. And adultery sabotages, or to use a word that we talked about last week, murders that covenant. So adultery, defined by the Old Testament, is man having sex with a married woman. Many other passages deal with fornication, defined as sexual acts outside the confines of marriage, but this commandment is not expanded to such acts. Adultery, as strictly defined by the Old Testament, is a man having sex with a married woman. And what's interesting is if adultery is so limited in scope, why would this be signaled out in the Ten Commandments? God's vocabulary clearly includes fornication or other forms of sexual immorality that are out of place. But see, at the heart of this command, at the heart of these words of life, was a family issue as related to the basic family unit as both the basis of society, but also as representative of God's family within the world. See, adultery undermined the integrity and covenant of marriage. It violated the sanctity of sexual union and defiled a human being as in the image of God and threatened the stability of the community. Marriage was a binding commitment of faithfulness between two persons, and it was in principle similar to the covenant relationship itself. So when you begin to approach this, any sort of violation on this grounds basically says, God, your covenant isn't sufficient. See, God is totally faithful. He keeps his word. And what adultery does is start to communicate a picture That's not who God is and what he is like. See, it's in this emphasis that loyal love expressed in trusting action must permeate every sphere of life, both the religious and the secular. Adultery of one partner in a marriage involved not only the unfaithfulness of the other partner, but also an unfaithfulness to God for the Israelite people. And you can start to see how that starts to stretch us and wonder what that might do and call us to. See, the primary emphasis of law is a guarding against the unfaithfulness in the marriage relationship. Both the positive and negative aspects become important throughout the Bible about a picture of how God chooses his people and they were to choose him. And even though We fail to constantly choose Him. We repeatedly fail to choose Him in all areas of our life. He still chooses us. He still chose us because He sent Jesus. He knew we could not keep the law. He knew that we could not check all the right boxes. Therefore, He sent someone to demonstrate what it was like to keep the covenant faithfully and fully and give us access fully and completely to him so that we don't just simply try to do the right things externally, but we become renewed internally. So transformed and captivated by his love for us that we can't help but value others, value other human beings. And in every and any moment when we see Marriage, figure out not how to put it on a pedestal, but be reminded of the promises of God, of how he is faithful, even when we are not. See, this passage isn't putting marriage on a pedestal. It's saying that marriage as part of society has both a utility and a divine purpose. And so adultery attacks both. And because Israel failed to keep this command, as we do, and if Jesus was sent for us, we have to start thinking, well, so what does Jesus say on the issue? Jesus steps into the story where people fought against the external act but failed to address the heart. And he says this in Matthew, almost as the new Moses giving a message to people on the precipice of learning what it's like to live fully and completely under God. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus' words on adultery is deepened and redefined to the level of desire. A desire fertilized by the gaze or in the words of Chrysostom Kindling the furnace within you. As you read Jesus' words, you see very quickly. He's not so much concerned with the external acts, though they are a factor. What's going on in here? What's going on in here? Because what is in here under pressure will come out. Under temptation, when you feel like you need something, control, power, approval. If what is in here is a desire for someone or something else in a non-God-ordained way, it will show up and come out. And you will be settling for something less than God's best. So he's saying that lust is equivalent to adultery itself. So lust is sexual desire or fantasy outside the confines of marriage. It goes beyond just simple attraction, to linger and longing. And I think we have to start asking, why do you want that person in that way? What's going on in your heart that is consuming, that that is allowing you to linger and long in such a way that you're settling or seeking someone else? outside what God has provided see lingering and misplaced longing through lust sabotages long-standing loyal love go back to my statement earlier on how multiple sex partners fracture the human soul so your body is wired with certain chemicals one of them being dopamine And it creates brain pathways, tunnels of sexual pleasure, if you will, that tell a person to do something again and again. One of the comments up there was recreation. And those neurochemical passages make it easier to do it again and again. Thus, any kind of contact begins to create the desire for more sexual connection with that same person. But our body also produces other chemicals in addition to dopamine. The brain releases oxytocin and vasopressin, which tells a woman that a man is hers and that a man, that a woman is his, or a person is another person's. And this kind of bonding is created every time a human has any kind of sexual experience. So what happens is done again and again, repeated in such a way. Outside the confines of marriage, the feeling of guilt Or maybe even dirtiness might arise because there's a lack of trust, but yet there's a deepening of connection. And what happens is outside of marriage, when this occurs, the brain begins to say, I'm confused. You've rewired your brain. You've formed your brain in such a way that you're seeking something that God has deemed as good. See, all this to say, Jesus prohibits illicit sexual encounters, whether physical or fantasy, because God has wired us for sexual fidelity and lifelong rugged commitments of love to one person. Hearts are wired to brains, and brains are wired to commitment. And there is a God who has made a commitment to you. And part of learning to live and respond to that commitment is showing commitment in our life. And lust reduces a person from a person to an object to be used to satisfy our desires. It reduces them. And what Jesus calls us to in the terms of marriage, in the terms of sex, in the terms of understanding our identity... It's trust over transaction. Everything in our world says make an exchange. Make a transaction. Reduce it. But trust comes from a heart. It comes from a reciprocal relationship where there is no fear. Some of you have gone through life and it's been hard and the trust has been broken. It's been eroded away. And you're wondering. Is there a way back. For me. Is there a way back. For my marriage. I'm alone or single. What is my path forward. And above all. It is only that Jesus. It's only Jesus that can satisfy. Which means. Developing a trust and understanding his loyal love must be paramount in your life so that when you find someone maybe that you're attracted to or interested in or when things get rough in your marriage, you won't seek an escape. You won't look for a loophole. You will start to understand and be transformed by the loyal love that God has for you. See, and what happens is as that transforms us, And as we do that collectively, we start to view each other first as children of God, loved by him, and second, as sexual beings. And when we do this, we will be less apt for desire to consume us like a forest fire. And the fire in our hearts, the desire that God has placed and given us as good, are more like a fire within a fireplace to be enjoyed. And what happens is, if we don't engage in this topic, if we don't start to wrestle with this, you're going to be informed and formed by other voices. What is happens on Netflix will seem way more enticing. Your friends that, that are struggling through things or seem happier doing things, maybe more liberated or free, you'll wonder is, is that what we're missing? And it's not. But our hearts are idle factories. And when what happens is we're prone to wander. We're prone to replace. And so what Jesus does is he gives us a pretty graphic response of how we should approach our misdirected desire. And he says we should eliminate it. We should seek to remove. I mean, he's like, chop off a hand, gouge out an eye. Some of you need to cancel some of your subscriptions until you get... You know, your YouTube, you know, your Netflix subscription under control because you're watching, you're watching shows that you shouldn't have and it's forming you in a way. So some of you actually need to take the step and cancel that and quit sharing passwords with others. Be ruthless. If you are sensing some sort of conviction in your heart that, man, maybe this is something I need to deal with, go to the source And seek to eliminate that. And if you need help identifying it, that's what the church community under the rule and reign of God is here to help and support. And so as we seek to live this well within the world, I do think there are some things that we can do. I think the first is to value marriage where you can. How do you speak about marriage? Maybe your own marriage. Is your wife the old ball and chain? You know, do you always have to do it? You, do you got to check with the boss? I mean, I mean, I could go on about comments that we say that actually undermine the God-given, ordained thing of marriage. And, and even those of you who are single or dating or engaged, Like, how are you helping your married friends? Those those who are married, how are you helping your single friends? You know, are you including them in community so that they don't feel isolated and feel like they've got to chase after uh, someone else? Is marriage always negative in jokes? Does your partner feel cherished? Value marriage where you can. You know... When you see an attractive girl at the gym or somewhere? Do you point nudging your buddy and saying, look at her? Or are you helping them think and cherish their relationships? So we got to think to value marriage where you can. Second thing I want to encourage you to do is confess sexual lust to God. When you begin to process your own desires and convicted or are wrestling, just give it to God. Turn it over, name it, identify it. If, if you're confused, that's okay. Just share it. And those of you who feel like maybe you need to confess it to another, be careful that you're confessing and not complaining. See, complaining about your spouse or about relationships or about your relationship status turns to confession when the cross informs what you say because you're ceasing to con- the desire to control the other. So if all you're doing is complaining about someone else or a relationship and, 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 you're, and you're doing it in a means of control, then you're missing out. If, if you're failing to develop compassion, or even unwilling to be challenged about your personal responsibility in the relationship, then maybe you're complaining and not confessing. If there's no clear lines of communication for how this relationship can be repaired or prepared, and, and someone asks you a question that says, well, have you thought about, and you're instantly defensive, maybe you're complaining and not confessing. And all above all, maybe if your motivation to change is simply the consequences of the pain, but not a new heart. Maybe you're complaining rather than confessing. Wow. See, confession, allow, naming who God is and what he has done and how he can cleanse us, God has promised to forgive us Amen. and give us a new heart. Amen. And sometimes we can do that with him, and sometimes we can do that with others. But make sure in your confession about what's going on in your heart and in your head is not simply complaining and it's actual confession. And I think the third is resist the temptation to reduce others to their sexual past, present, and future. Shame is a powerful weapon. Don't wield it. Because while shame is a powerful weapon, loyal love is greater. So your motivations change, not by how much shame you feel, but how much love you feel towards something new. And people need to feel and see and receive a tangible love that persists even through mistakes, even through maybe, maybe you don't agree Maybe, maybe there's a faulty perception there, but your loyal love and commitment to them doesn't stem because you agree with them, but persists because you're in alignment and agreement and you're attached to God. It allows you to stay, to pray, to care when the going gets tough. And what's going to happen is for some of you, is, is you've got to resist that temptation to also future trip. When you got married or, or when you get married or when, when things work out or maybe when they don't work out, you've got to resist that temptation. So if you need help remembering those, value marriage where you can. Confess sexual lust to God and resist the temptation. VCRs may be outdated, but marriage is not. We need to be people that understand who God is and what he has done for us, that allows us to persist in this world, to build trust over transaction. So what I'd like to do is just simply pray and close our time. I know today can sometimes be a difficult topic, and some of you maybe feel like you're going to walk on eggshells, or what is Kyle going to say, and is he going to leverage any of that shame or hurt, let me say that generations is first and foremost always committed to Jesus. And as we commit to Jesus, we know that that will shape your heart and your mind. We're committed for this over the long haul. As God has been patient and faithful with us, our commitment is not to simply be patient and faithful with you so that we can change you but to be patient and faithful with you because God has done that with us. And maybe in the process, we all experience new hearts, new joy, new peace, and the new family that God creates through people submitted to him. Let me pray. God, you are good. So as we go just in and about our week, as we think about who we are and what we've done, and where we've been. May we be people who put you first. And in response to that and into that truth, may we find ways to value marriages, confess our sin, and resist temptation in ways that deepen trust with you and with others. So it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.